your, you know, your trajectory from, you know, an inorganic chemist to an organometallic chemist to someone who studies mechanism of reactions. And now you're, you know, one of the top scientists in our discovery chemistry organization, which I think is, is really phenomenal. So um, this is a really great story. Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world. And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S., also known as MSD everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories. And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group. Each week we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it and also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. So welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Farm to Table podcast. Today we're starting our retrospective on the Merck Catalysis Group. Uh, recently there was a really nice perspective highlighting the 20th year anniversary of the Catalysis Laboratory here and we really figured that we probably need to dedicate more than one episode um, you know, to this and so today we're really excited to start our discussion with uh, Shane Kriska, who's a distinguished scientist in our Discovery Chemistry Organization and was one of the very first members of the Catalysis Lab back in the day. So Shane, welcome to the pod. Welcome. Yay, thanks for inviting me. It's awesome to be here. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> We're excited to have you. So Shane, um, why don't you start by introducing yourself, who you are, where you're from, and what you currently do at Merck. Sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, Shane Kurska, I was born and raised in the Black Hills of South Dakota, in Spearfish, South Dakota, <laughs> uh, great name, uh, whole story there. And uh, I come from a family of, of five, we had uh, three kids in the family, I'm the middle child, uh, which says a lot about me, uh, if you know me. And uh, I stayed there for my undergraduate training, I went to the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. Ooh. Uh, Right? That's a mouthful. Uh, good old SDSMNT, um, uh, home of the hard rockers. And uh, yeah, studied chemistry there because there were only two science majors, physics or chemistry. So I, I chose chemistry. Um, chose so, right. Chose right. Oh, yeah. No regrets. Uh, <laughs> definitely. So uh, yeah. So, you know, grew up doing lots of hiking and fishing and uh, really love the outdoors. And uh yeah, so what I do now is I'm in the discovery chemistry area, and we have a, uh, a dedicated uh, enabling capabilities group we call the HTE group, and uh, I'm sort of one of the scientific leads in that group and uh, do a lot with developing new workflows, new technologies, uh, do a lot with academic collaborations, and I've also, in the last year or so, kind of taken over more responsibility across Discovery Chemistry for managing our whole portfolio of external collaborations. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you've been um, you've been a titan in all of those aspects. And so we're really excited to talk to you today. But going back to the beginning, when you were in South Dakota, I guess what aspects, were there any aspects of living in South Dakota that got you inspired to become a chemist? Aha, uh -huh. yeah, well... Um, you know, actually, it's, it's kind of cool. My next door neighbor 
was a college professor. Oh, uh, and he was, yeah. So we had this little, um, small college in my town, Black Hill State University. And, uh, he was a professor of botany and, uh, yeah. So his son was about the same age as me and he always encouraged us to come to his labs and just like, he gave us a corner of the lab and, and we had like acid base indicators and, we, we could just kind of just, you know, futz around in the lab. He had a scanning electron microscope in his lab, which was amazing. We would take wow. pictures of ant, ant heads and all kinds of awesome stuff. So I really think he was the one and his son that really encouraged me to get into science. And so I think that's kind of where that whole love was born. So that got you into chemistry um, and science. Uh, so following your undergraduate studies, I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about uh you know, your, um, your studies leading up to Merck process, what led you to join Merck, um, as well? Yeah. So I can say, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do with chemistry. I, uh, I thought I wanted to be a college professor. Uh, and some of my undergraduate research had been in the area of physical chemistry. Um, but I also has, had also liked, uh, inorganic chemistry and I was actually a dual physics major for a while. So I was kind of trying to figure out what it was exactly I wanted to do. Um, and so when I applied to graduate school, I was actually thinking more along lines of materials chemistry, because I thought that would kind of bring different worlds together of, you know, kind of physics and math and chemistry and making stuff and testing it and all that. So I ended up um, going to MIT and I worked with Professor Dietmar Seiferth. And uh, Dietmar did a lot of polymer chemistry, which is what attracted me to his group. But he was actually a main group organometallic chemistry professor. And I hadn't even he heard of organometallic chemistry before I came to MIT. But once I started taking some classes from Dietmar, from Dick Schrock, and some of these other kind of like, you know, gods of inorganic chemistry, it was, you know, my eyes were just open. My mind was blown. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever, you know, metal carbon bonds and catalysis and all of that. So um, as I was finishing up my PhD studies, I was thinking about what was going to come next. I really wanted to do something more with catalysis. And I'd heard a very inspiring lecture from Bob Bergman on CH activation chemistry. And I, I was just, again, like, I have to work with this guy. So um, very fortunately, I was able to get a postdoctoral position with Bob at Berkeley, spent two years there. And you know, at the end of that time, you know, that was when I started, you know, obviously looking for jobs. And I think it was really that background I got from Bob, uh, you know, kind of really understanding how to take apart reaction mechanisms, do kinetics, um, you know, really kind of understand, you know, catalysis at that level, which kind of opened the door for me to come to Merck. Uh, because there was a group in Merck, and I guess there still is, it was called the Reaction Engineering Laboratory. And that was their focus was, you know, understanding reactions at a mechanistic level and using that insight to sort of guide uh, reactions that are kind of moving through late stage process development and troubleshoot sort of difficult underperforming chemistry. So that was kind of how I got my, my foot in the door at Merck. Yeah, Shane, I mean, I think it's worth an aside here because I think, you know, one of the, one of the hopes that I had in sort of hearing your story and having our listeners hear your story is I think a lot of people assume that people who work in process chemistry or who work in medicinal chemistry have sort of a classic synthesis background. Some would even say total, total synthesis, synthesis background. Total synthesis, yeah. Right. And 
I think uh, it's both a testament to, you know, the diversity of ideas that we value at Merck and ultimately your, you know, your trajectory from, you know, an inorganic chemist to an organometallic chemist to someone who studies mechanism of reactions. And now you're, you know, one of the top scientists in our discovery chemistry organization, which I think is, is really phenomenal. So um, this is a really great story. Yeah, um, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I, it is amazing. And I have to say that it's, you know, that culture at Merck that really allowed me to sort of foster the interest and, and find places to plug myself into, right? And and learn more. I had to learn a lot of organic chemistry at Merck, I have to say. <laughs> we all do, really. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah, you, you forget. I mean, you do a PhD in organic chemistry, and with few exceptions, you know, you might focus on a handful of reactions. You're the world expert on those reactions, but then, you know, you get here and you got to solve you know, random reaction. Anyways, um, so why don't we dive a little bit into the perspective article and, and, and really, you know, what we were hoping to learn from you today is sort of like how this whole thing started and ultimately what the focus in the paper, you briefly allude to the formation of what we now allude to today as the catalysis lab, which, you know, was under a new name. But obviously this, this started from this reaction engineering lab. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of how that actually happened and sort of where all that came from? Yeah, sure. So the yeah so the as I mentioned this reaction engineering laboratory was was kind of an interesting blend it was about a 50-50 mix of chemical engineers and and people with kind of a background in catalysis of one sort or another and uh you know I I actually wasn't really in the room when some of these discussions were being had about hey we should start a catalysis group I will just say that from the moment I stepped in the door at Merck, I was, you know, I was talking with my boss, Yong Kui Sun, you know, we were talking about how it would be awesome if we could do more in the area of catalysis and how there was a lot of, you know, really cool automation we could think about using. And, and there was an automation group in process chemistry at the time uh, that Dave Mathry had set up. So you could sort of see all the ingredients there. Um, but I think it was really Yonkwe who took that and, and, and somehow socialized that with the management, you know, of process chemistry, but also chemical engineering, which were, you know, separate departments. And basically those two departments came together and did something which I think was pretty unusual at the time as they essentially started this new group as a joint venture, right? And so we had sort of dotted line reporting relationships and things like that. But, you know, we had um, Chris McWilliams came over from process chemistry. He had a little bit of background in asymmetric hydrogenation. Then we had the members of the REL kind of mashed everybody together and we became this new group, which was called the CRDD. Um, and we also had the automation uh, folks that I had mentioned earlier that joined us as well, because none of us knew anything about automation at that time. I loved how in the paper, um, there's like a screen grab of the announcement. I don't know who had that and was able to dig that up, but I thought that was kind of a unique artifact that was able to be shown there. That was me. And yeah, I still have the full PDF of that. And I don't know why I saved that, but I'm really glad I did. Yeah, it came in handy, right? Um, Definitely. So let's dive in maybe to some of the aspects of the first gen of the catalysis group. Now, it's evident from the review that a lot of the team focused initially on developing asymmetric hydrogenation capabilities. But can you maybe help us understand um, like what, like, what was it like to establish the equipment and the catalyst uh, collections in order to start impacting projects? Yeah, 
So I would say we had very little infrastructure when we started. Uh, we actually only had one glove box and it was a single person glove box. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we there was a lot of things we had to figure out really fast. And we knew we were going to focus on asymmetric hydro hydrogenation. And I think maybe we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, about why we chose that. Um, but yeah, so we essentially combed through all the catalogs, STREM and you name it, and bought every ligand they had. But we didn't even really have a way to screen anything. We didn't have any real equipment. We had hydrogenation manifolds in the reaction engineering laboratory because we had done a lot of work with hydrogenations, but not asymmetric hydrogenations per se. Um, so, you know, one of the things we sort of figured out on the fly was using these pressure bottles, the Fisher Porter bottles, which is kind of a standard piece of kit from, um, you know, a lot of organic chemistry labs. And we figured out ways to like shove little tiny HPLC vials into the bottoms of those. And that was our screening. And we learned quickly to not use a Sharpie to write the, the labels on the vials because the solvent would dissolve all the labels and you'd have to repeat your screen because you didn't know what was in any of the HPLC vials. But yeah, so it was, uh, it was pretty, um, pretty uh, rudimentary at the beginning. Maybe one other thing just that was really important in, in those early days is we needed to have some kind of credibility that we could take these things forward into a factory set, uh, setting. And so what we needed to do was work with people in procurement. So we had some great partners in procurement that were proactively reaching out to all the people that owned the IP on all these Cairo ligands and helped us get supply agreements in place such that when we started to get some hits and we saw some interesting things, people believed us that there was a path forward to actually using this in a manufacturing setting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important, right? I mean, we we here and there talk about IP on the podcast and sort of how we navigate it. And I think for things like chiral ligands, right, or, or catalysts, um, ultimately there's a, an element of, you know, both cost as well as availability that's important for some of these. And, and I know that, you know, we partnered with Sylvia's very early on and they had this very large collection of like sort of Walfoss and Josie Foss and all the other sort of ferrocene type ligands. But every once in a while you, you, you need to use one of those things and it's one of the ones that's in the back of the drawer and there's not that much of it around, right? So availability of some of these catalysts becomes really, really important as well. Um, you know, so obviously you focused initially on asymmetric hydrogenation. You highlighted that it was important to, you know, identify an area of impact. We're, I, I'm assuming at this point we're right off the heels of the Nobel Prize for Knowles and company, right? Um, how did the team identify the right opportunities? And can you walk us through a couple of the early successes? Sure. And and I think, you know, just to say that I think, yes, that, that Nobel Prize was important. I think, you know, to kind of catalyzing interest in this, there was a business analysis that was done, you know, again, I believe by Yang Kui and some other people that sort of showcased the potential impact we could have on our late stage pipeline just through this one chemistry asymmetric hydrogenation. You know, what percentage of our late stage clinical assets would be amenable to this kind of approach. So that was really, I think, you know, part of the whole business case for doing this in the first place. But then, yeah, as soon as we got the approval, it was time to really, you know, take a close look at that pipeline and start thinking about which of these molecules uh, really could benefit from this technology. So there were a few uh, projects that really stood out in those early days. Uh, Citagliptin was kind of the, the most prominent one, at least in my mind. Um, and, and again, that was uh, the, the active ingredient for what we now market as Genuvia and Janumet. And uh, that was a project that was moving very quickly. And uh, there was an initial kind of hit that we had on an asymmetric hydrage route. 
And so this was a great opportunity for the team to kind of cut its teeth on asymmetric hydrogenation, because if I failed to mention earlier, none of us knew anything about asymmetric hydrogenation other than, you know, what we <laughs> learned in it. our <laughs> organometallic chemistry class, oxidative addition, migratory insertion, reductive elimination. That's what I knew about asymmetric hydrogenation, right? Um, so we had a lot to learn really quickly, right? And so that was a great opportunity to sort of figure out like how you scale these things up and what can go wrong. There was a million things that we learned in that process, working closely with the engineers. So that was a, a really important project. Um, in addition to that, uh, there was uh, Larapoprant, uh, which was a PGD2 inhibitor, which was part of our cardiovascular franchise. Um, and so that was kind of right in that same time period. Um, there was an, an unsaturated carboxylic acid substrate. So part of the thing that we were learning as an organization was how to engineer manufacturing routes that took advantage of asymmetric hydrogenations, right? And what was our philosophy going to be? We didn't want to shoehorn a synthesis through an intermediate that we knew had high precedent and high probability of success that would ultimately lead, you know, for an asymmetric hydrogenation that would ultimately lead to a non-optimal process. We wanted to flip that. We wanted to come up with what would be the ideal process, regardless of how wicked that substrate looked for an asymmetric hydrogenation, and then count on the fact that we could screen and we could use our capabilities to solve that really challenging problem. Yeah, I mean, that really resonates with me because I think in the context of all enabling technologies, right? That's sort of been our philosophy. It's like, we want to invest in these new capabilities, these new ways of making molecules. Um, but you kind of have to make sure that you're still looking at the best way to make that molecule. And, and I think, you know, for me, I keep going back to that sort of 2004 Jack's paper on, on the asymmetric hydrogenation, you know, of that beta enamid and sort of the first example of that on this class of substrates. And that was sort of emblematic of, you know, the, the work product of this team. And, I, you know, to this day was one of the main reasons, you know, I was so excited to join Merck in the first place it really inspired me. So, you know, I, I think, I think that was um, that philosophy of sort of taking these new reactions, these new technologies, and then sort of inventing what doesn't exist yet with them, I think is really important. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm really, I didn't realize that. I'm glad you said that. I mean, that's, that's really cool. And maybe I'll just point out that one of the projects I didn't mention, Turanaban, which is a CB1 inverse agonist. Similarly, uh, we ended up having to hydrogenate a Tetris substituted enamid, you know, maybe not quite as dramatic as the, you know, unsubstituted enamine for acetagliptin, but in many of these cases, we were pushing into unknown territory. Now, while the catalysis group was starting to build up its 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 internal capabilities, um, as folks on the pod know, we're big fans of of industrial academic collaborations. And Shane, you are a pioneer of sorts here, and um, you initiated what has now been a very fruitful collaboration with uh, Paul uh, Turk's group at uh, Princeton. So, can you tell us a little bit more about your motivations and some of the research that came out of this collaboration? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean it. It's it's interesting, you know. There there, I, I certainly learned a lot about you know how to do collaborations from from Yang Kui, who was you know my first boss and my mentor. And Yang Kui, I think, was one of the people that I think really championed this idea, at least for process chemistry, of being more engaged with the external world. And he had started a number of collaborations, some of whom he had involved me in. So I had a little bit of experience. And so I think 
when, you know, and I knew Paul, you know, from past um, interactions through the sort of inorganic chemistry community, but yeah, I, I still remember very distinctly uh, when Paul and I met and this whole idea was hatched. Um, maybe I'll back up just a little before then, you know, I had a folder and actually Mike Shevlin can, uh, can back me up on this. I had a folder. It said cobalt in asymmetric hydrogenation. It was a manila folder and there were three papers in it. And, and I remember one day I, I handed it to Shevlin. I'm like, Shevlin, this would be so cool if we could do asymmetric hydrogenation with cobalt, right? Because we were, you know, we were just really excited about this idea of, you know, obviously being able to pair any chirophosphine if you just had the right precursor, but you just need that equivalent of like cod, rhodium, BF4, right? Um, but it didn't exist. So um, when I went to this uh, inorganic reaction mechanisms, GRC, and, and Paul was there, and I gave a talk, and he came up to me afterwards. He's like, you know, I really think we should collaborate. I'm moving to Princeton. Um, and initially, he was thinking around some of the, the PDI ligands that he had developed, these chiral PDI ligands with iron, et cetera. And we started talking some more, and then I said, Paul, that's cool, but here's what we really want, right? We want, you know, the equivalent of biscod, rhodium, BF4 for cobalt. And he's like, I love that. He's like, challenge accepted, right? Let's do this, right? So, you know, it was one of those things that just felt so right. I mean, it was mostly at the time driven by our own interests. I mean, certainly Paul already had this vision of sustainable metals in catalysis and, and how we can, you know, replace, you know, the uh, precious metals. Um, but, you know, I think maybe on the Merck side, you could see that, but maybe it wasn't quite uh, so prominent as a driver yet. It was more just, hey, that'd be really cool. And I wonder what kind of reactivity we could get out of that. So it was a great marriage of, you know, Paul's expertise in, you know, the, the, the sort of first row metal chemistry and, 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 and organometallic chemistry reaction mechanisms, and then pairing that with our own internal expertise, in addition to all of the awesome, you know, HD screening equipment we have and all that. So bringing Paul's students, you know, to work with us, um, it, it was a great collaboration and, you know, it, it still is, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the things that I took away from that um, and maybe reflective of the success of it is um, you guys took tremendous advantage of basically co-location with, with Paul being in Princeton and the students basically being able to come on site and leverage our capabilities constantly. But I think ultimately over time, you know, this spilled into a whole bunch of new areas because the students were starting to be exposed to some of the problems that, that we had. And, and we started to ask different questions as we interacted with them. So, you know, I, I think it's been um, a really, uh, you know, really exemplary of sort of the the, the potential win-wins that come from these types of things and, and ultimately why this, the NSF has sort of renewed this this uh, goalie grant, I think three times now, which is pretty unusual, right? So I think a, a testament to the success of of this collaboration and I think the, the sort of foresight that you guys had to start this in the first place. So it's really, really nice um, piece of science overall. Paul's also super fun. So. Yeah, no, he's, you're right. He and his students, they're, they're just a blast to work with, right? Just the sense of humor and um, yeah, just, just a joy to work with. And, and, you know, that was, we're going to talk a minute, I think about my transition away from this whole space, but that was the hardest part, to be honest, was knew, knowing I'd have to step away from that collaboration. So it wasn't Paul that drove you out? <laughs> No kidding. Maybe he pulled we'll, some strings behind the scenes, right? He wanted. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll get we'll get Paul to send us um, an audio here about this collaboration as well, because I think that's going to be uh, really nice to kind of hear his insights about this as well. And and we'll play this um, we'll play this right here. Awesome. 
So we approached Shane Kriska back in 2011. And uh, the goal at the time was really to discover ways to generate asymmetric olefin hydrogenation catalysts based on first row metals rapidly like you did with precious metals. And at the time, we could generate catalysts to do asymmetric hydrogenation, but it was one-off. We had to synthesize specialty ligands and then ultimately the organometallic cobalt compounds. And we were drawn to the to the citagliptin work that came out of the catalysis group and that how you could find uh, these sophisticated catalysts really quickly and they would work on you know, real molecules of, of interest um, you know, to the company. And so what we wanted to do is figure out how you do that with iron and cobalt. And uh, you know, the state of the field now, you know, many years later is, is very different. And I think it's because we had this collaboration and we've been focused on you know, how do you generate catalysts that people would use that would solve real problems? And I think this interplay between our understanding of the, of the coordination chemistry and the organometallic chemistry and the electronic structure of these first row metal complexes, and then coupled with the work in the catalysis group at Merck on target identification, reaction optimization, high throughput experimentation, and ligand and catalyst discovery, I think is really meshed together perfectly. And what's come out of it has been work that's certainly been uh, greater than the sum of the parts. Answering what I'm most proud of in the collaboration, I think, is, is hard because I, there's been a lot of successes. For, first and foremost, I, I'm most proud of the training. Um, the, the training environment that's provided to the students and the postdocs has been really unique. Um, there's a safety aspect of it that we couldn't replicate at Princeton. There's a, an outreach aspect of it. There's um, the scientific aspect. I mean, target selection, what matters to move a catalyst forward. Um, so I can honestly say that the education that my students and postdocs have received from, from working with the catalysis group has been truly unique and something that I couldn't provide had we not interacted um, with so many members of the team over the years. Um, from a scientific point of view, I, I think it's really important to look at where first row metal asymmetric hydrogenation catalysis was in 2011 and, and where it is now, you know, over a decade later. And it went from science that had to be done in glove boxes, rigorously dried solvents by really specialized organometallic chemists to a limited sub, on a limited set of substrates to now pharmaceutically relevant examples to reactions that cobalt will do that rhodium won't in solvents that are perhaps greener, um, reactions that are faster, more enantioselective, and uh, in some cases are, are drop-in replacements for rhodium. So I think, um, you know, if you asked me when we started if we would ever get to this point, I probably wouldn't have said I would have thought so in such a short time. And this really, I think, highlights the, the beauty of collaboration and how, you know, this interplay between the academic and the industrial side really produced science that wouldn't have happened uh, had we not worked together. Okay, so Shane, um, initial success in asymmetric hydrogenation, tremendously successful, um, you know, and I think asymmetric hydrogenation over the last, you know, 30 years or so has really become one of the primary methods that chiral centers are set um, in the pharmaceutical industry as well as in the commodity chemical industry. But um, relatively quickly in the paper, you pivot about sort of beyond asymmetric hydrogenation and transfer hydrogenations into cross-couplings. And I actually remember... Um, you know, this memo where it was like, okay, we're going into cross-coupling and we have to start hiring people who know stuff about cross-coupling, right? Um, but I think it's it's maybe naive to think that the HTE tools we had for 
screening hydrogenations could quickly and immediately be used, um, you know, for other transition metal catalyst reactions. So how easy was that? And how critical to the success was it, you know, to be able to kind of, what were the key things that allowed us to, to really expand into cross couplings? Yeah, it was, it definitely, <laughs> it was a naive assumption that that would be a straightforward uh, transition. We, we had a lot of trouble with this. We really struggled with it. And I want to say it was at least a year it took us to learn how to do this properly. Um, and I think some of the early data we were generating wasn't of high quality. We had all kinds of issues. Um, one of the issues was just evaporation. You know, for asymmetric hydrogenation, we had made use of commercial reactors and, um, you know, you know, sometimes you were heating these things, but it was in a way it was kind of a closed system. But when we started running cross-coupling chemistry, you know, we had sort of like the, the cap mats would leak and the solvent would come out or the, it, the solvents would chew up the Teflon um, cap mat. And so it just wasn't the right material. Um, we had issues with, you know, stirring. We didn't really know like really how to properly agitate cross-coupling reactions. We didn't even really know how to get the solid base in there. Uh, that was a real challenge. Um, and then there were issues with like kind of order of addition. So how do you, you know, when you're just like setting up a, a you know, at the bench, one cross coupling reaction, you sort of weigh everything in at the balance, you, you know, put it, put it on your line and, and inert the vessel and then squirt in your solvent. Right. But how do you kind of replicate those conditions in, in a little tube, you know, that you're adding stuff in as solutions, right? Because sometimes if you do it in the wrong order, your palladium can, you know, black out on you and you never really form the palladium complex. So, yeah, we struggled a lot with that. I would say a few kind of quick things that we learned. One was there's something called PFA. It's like the magic, you know, kind of polymer for making these cat mats. That was, that was a huge, you know, discovery for us. Um, you know, and it just came from someone going to a conference, a lab automation conference and bringing home some samples <laughs> and we tried it out. Right. That was Spencer actually who did that. And then uh, this idea of using tumble stirrers, that was really important for us to get the proper agitation and then learning how to control particle size on these solid bases and learning how to dose them using solid handling robots um, and through slurry dosing. So those, all of those things had to come together, but we actually had this thing we called the focus library initiative. And maybe that's what you were referring to. And it was essentially us picking some chemistries going to the literature, pulling literature examples, and not being satisfied until we could reproduce the yields they were getting in the paper in the little wells. I was responsible for CN coupling, so that was the one that I took on. Um, and I just remember how much I struggled until I finally reproduced that Buckwald paper. Talk about picking the short straw you know, of all the ones that you could go on. That's definitely a toughie. But I think it brings up a really important point is that I think um, – I think impressions are changing about high throughput experimentation, but there has always been this pre, this um, this like pre-existing notion that what you see in a small vial will not translate. And so you kind of spoke to some of the more technical aspects, but one of them is also um, you know catalyst activation plays a large role in how reactions can translate from small to large scale. So can you, I guess, speak to the importance of understanding that? Yeah, absolutely, and. You know, again, historically, we had these same kinds of questions with asymmetric hydrogenation. How do you really know that you formed the rhodium or iridium phosphine complex, or especially ruthenium? We had a lot of trouble with ruthenium in the early days and had to play around with different precursors. So, yeah, I think that's a, a significant source of potential irreproducibility. Obviously, you know, the early days, everyone was using palladium acetate or some flavor of palladium DBA. 
and you know there's been a lot of papers published on all the different things that can happen uh, with those as precursors, but also how they interact with phosphine ligands and how they get activated to palladium zero. Some of that was known at the time. Some of that wasn't very well known. All we knew was that you know we had to pay very close attention to that. And we started experimenting with other precursors like allyl palladium chloride dimer, which in some cases proved to be less problematic. And there were some other variations on that with cinnamyl dimers, et cetera, that we started to gravitate toward. Then, you know, kind of big breakthrough moment was with these Buckwald precatalysts, right? And, you know, that was something that at first we weren't 100% sure how that was going to fit into the picture um, because it looked like they might be a little more expensive, a little harder to get a hold of. Um, but, uh, you know, I think at some point it became really obvious that that was going to be the way to go especially if one wanted to do sort of kits and things like that, where you just really needed something to work and to take all the complexity out of it. Now, as we look forward to trying to land this plane, I guess we want to know, Shane, looking back, is there any like favorite project, any reaction that you still, you know, recall fondly? Yeah. Well, again, there's a lot of them, but we we talked about Citagliptin earlier and I just, want to say that that was just so exciting because of the urgency, because we were blazing this trail that Merck had never done in asymmetric hydrogenation in a factory before, because I had, you know, Joe Armstrong and Ed Grabowski in my office about every other day wanting to know about my results. You know, it was just a, a lot of those things coming together. And, and we had that sense that we would do something new, right? And something very impactful. And, and of course, the chemistry is really cool. It's mechanistically very complex. We don't have time to get into it here, but uh, lots of nuances in how that reaction works and how we learned how to do it robustly and kind of extract the most out of that, that chemistry for the factory. That's great. Um, so I think we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about your transition to the discovery team. So around 2012-ish, 2013, 2012, you transitioned into um, you know your role in the catalysis lab into a role in the discovery chemistry organization. And again, I think a lot of our audience maybe doesn't know that we move people across this line quite often. Can you give us a sense of what the goal was with your move and sort of what your work entails today? Yeah. So I'd always been curious about discovery. And uh, so, you know, as we learned how to do cross coupling, we started to have much more interactions with um, medicinal chemists. Right. And that's where we started to do some projects for MedChem, but also, you know, develop kits, et cetera. But I wanted to learn more. And um, I actually had an opportunity through an academic collaboration of all things. So it was a collaboration that Yonkwe had started with Mitch Smith and Rob Maleshka on CH borylation. And when Yonkwe moved on to a different role, I inherited that collaboration. So when trying to think through like what that chemistry could be useful for, it became obvious that it was going to be much more useful for our medicinal chemistry colleagues than probably in a process chemistry setting. And that really catalyzed some conversations with different groups in MedChem. And, at, and that led to us making a decision to form a little you know, offshoot of the catalysis laboratory that would focus on CH borylation and other CH functionalization chemistries, specifically in the MedChem space. And so that's kind of what led me to do my first rotation. And then that rotation kind of turned into a permanent move. And then we essentially kind of built off of that. We had some enabling chemistries. We started to expand that. We brought in some more sophisticated automation. And then we started playing with things like direct-to-biology, micropurification, all of that. So that's kind of blossomed over the last 10 years. And now we have this uh, you know, enabling technologies group 
uh, that's based out of Kenilworth, New Jersey. And, you know, we have lots of different tools and we're interacting with lots of programs across Merck. Well, Shane, um, thank you very much for joining our pod. Uh, we really um, appreciated your um, insights into the origin story of the of the Catalysis Group. And this will be part of a mini series, if you will, on a retrospective of the Catalysis Group. Uh, so thank you, Shane, for um, coming on the pod. We really enjoyed um, hearing you, and uh, we wish you well on your discovery chemistry efforts. Thank you. It was great talking with you both. Thanks for listening to the Farm to Table podcast. This would not have been possible without our fabulous producer, Mark Partridge, and listeners like you. Be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show, as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show. If you find yourself craving even more info, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Danny the Chemist, and Elsie can be found at, at, at Dr. Elsie Squared. But of course, our show also has a handle, and that is at Farm to Table Pod. Farm with a PH, in case you were wondering, where you'll find some behind the scenes action, future episodes, and sneak peeks, and likely some random post, posts about chemistry, snacks, and where, whatever else. Of course, uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please uh, interact with us on Twitter. Feel free to post any chemistry papers, Merck chemistry papers that, uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around. So stay tuned, folks. <laughs>